following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This is the time in our service when we pray together. And once a month, that takes the form of a meditative prayer. And we'll be using a stone to help us with that today. You should have gotten one when you walked in this morning, but if you didn't, you can just raise your hand and Shane will take care of you. He's got the bowl of stones back there so he can come around and give you one. And in your seat, I invite you to take a posture of awareness that might be sitting up a little straighter, supporting your back, that might be putting your feet flat on the ground, your hands in your lap, whatever is comfortable for you. I got these stones yesterday. I picked them up off the beach at Duran Eastman. It's just a rock. If you were walking by, you probably wouldn't think twice about it. But I invite you now to take a closer look. Really pay attention to the physical characteristics of your stone. Observe as closely as you can the colors, the texture, the shape. Just take a few moments now to look at it. And see what you noticed that you didn't see when you first picked it up. If you find that your thoughts start to wander, try to bring them back and just focus your attention on the stone. Now, if you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and continue to observe the stone, but this time just with your fingers. Pay attention to its texture, its shape. Hold it in the palm of your hand and feel it get warmer as it absorbs that heat from your body. Imagine all the years this stone has seen. Now this part might be a little strange, but stay with me. Imagine you are a stone with a stone's stillness and silence. What wisdom do you have?
Creator God, you made all things. You made this stone, which has withstood wind and weather and time. You made it with all of its colors and textures, its imperfections, and you know it intimately, just as you know all your creation. O Lord, our creator, you made me. You made all of the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You know my heart. You know everything about me. You know my imperfections, and you love me fiercely. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. You have been there with me through trial and hardship, through darkness and doubt, even when I could not feel you there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. You are my rock, my refuge, my stronghold. This rock is yours to do what you'd like with it. It can be a useful tool for centering yourself in prayer if that's something that interests you, or you can return it to nature. But I pray that it will be a reminder of God's steadfast love for you and his presence in your life. Amen. Let's turn to the words of Scripture. Today's message is entitled Five Stones, but it's not going to be a traditional sermon or even whatever version of traditional sermon it is that I usually give. Uh, instead, it's going to be more of a, uh, a time to meditate and reflect on Scripture, a chance to soak in the words of the Bible in a different way. You might say uh, that this type of reading of Scripture, this type of, of message, is a chance for us to... Um, stop with the endless need to master the Bible, that is to understand it perfectly, to learn it perfectly, to be able to control it with our rational minds like we want to, and rather instead for us to allow the scriptures to master us in some way. Um, you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about Psalm 119, that very long psalm about meditating on God's word and how lovely it is and all that sort of thing. This is exactly the type of thing I want to do this morning. So the way this will work is, uh, is the topic is based on this physical, tangible object, a stone. Right? Five stones in particular from five passages of Scripture. And uh, if you like nerdy backstory stuff, these particular five stones, because after all there's more than five of them in the Bible, these particular five stones come from a philosopher, literary critic, theologian, uh, named Rene Girard, who has uh, been formative in my own life over the last couple of years, even though I can barely understand his brilliant mind. 
Um, so if you'd like to go way deep down the rabbit hole, you could look up Rene Girard, but if you don't like deep rabbit holes, you can stay right above ground, and we'll just talk about five stones, and it will be fine. Um, so what we'll do is we'll read each of these passages of Scripture, and I encourage you to either listen very intently, maybe with your eyes closed if that helps, or if you are a visual learner, I have the page numbers for the, the so-called pew Bibles, the red Bibles, and you can follow along with your eyes if you prefer that. But I want you to listen for the stone and look for the stone in each passage and imagine it, reflect on it, feel its weight, its temperature, all the things that Jolene suggested we do during that beautiful meditative prayer just a moment ago. Know the stone's purpose in the passage, if you will. And then I'll have a reflection question or two or maybe three about each one of the passages, each one of the stones, and uh, at the end, we'll conclude with an examination of our own hearts. And I would, I'm going to give you what I think is one very key truth that highlights the deep beauty of the gospel. We're talking about, during this Eastertide series, uh, how beautiful the gospel is, how beautiful the message of God actually is. We don't always talk about it in a way that's beautiful. We don't often think about it in a way that's beautiful. But the message of the gospel, the good news, is beautiful. And so I hope at the end of this period of meditation and reflection on these five stones and five passages that we will arrive at a key truth that helps us understand the deep beauty of the gospel. Okay. So let's get started with the first stone. The first stone is the largest stone. It's the stone that was rolled away from the tomb of Jesus. It is Eastertide after all, and so we ought to be thinking intently about the resurrection. Now, in many ways, this stone that was rolled away from the tomb of Jesus is the heaviest weight in all of Scripture. Because this stone being removed from its location represents a miracle that is almost impossible for us to believe, particularly those of us who are conditioned toward uh, empiricism and rationalism and and, uh, Western enlightenment and all that kind of thing. This stone is maybe the heaviest weight in all of Scripture. Let's read this uh, little bit here. I'll read it aloud to you. It's Mark 15, the end of Mark 15 and the beginning of Mark 16. We pick up the story after the crucifixion of Jesus. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth, and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, 
had already been rolled back. Now, can you put yourselves in their shoes for a minute and imagine what it would have been like to come to this tomb early in the morning and see that very large stone out of place? It's interesting, they were already worried about how they were going to move it so they could get to the body to anoint it. And when they got there, the stone was already moved. How would you react if you saw that? Would you touch it and see? <laughs> Is this made of styrofoam? How did this happen? It's a very heavy stone. Would you be in disbelief? Would you be in fear? What would your response be to that stone being in that place? What is your explanation here in 2016 for why that stone was not where it should have been? Does this stone cause you to rejoice? Or does it cause you to doubt? Or maybe, as is so often the case with so many of us, is it a little bit of both? Rejoicing and doubting all in the same breath. The second stone is the cornerstone. Now, uh, on Palm Sunday, if you're here with us, we looked at the cornerstone at some length. And uh, I explained at that time what a cornerstone is, in case you don't know. Since, um, since not everybody was here, we can talk about the cornerstone again very briefly. Uh, so look at the stone that you have. My stone is not remotely square. Does anybody have a stone that's kind of square at all? Um, a cornerstone is the first stone that a builder would lay, lay down when building something new. And it had to be chosen from all the stones that the builder had as the one that was the most square on all sides, right? Because the first one you put down, you're going to line up the next stone next to it in every direction, actually. And so if you want to have a straight wall at the end, you have to start with a straight cornerstone, right? So let's look together at Psalm 118. For some reason, this psalm has appeared a number of times in the last several weeks, partly due to the lectionary and partly just due to the way we've been looking at Scripture. I want to look at 118, verses 21 through 23. It says this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so real talk for a minute. Whether you are a religious person or a spiritual person or a believer of any kind or not, I want you to think about your own life. You can do this, doesn't matter if you're a Christian, doesn't matter if you believe anything about Jesus in particular or not. What is what you would say the cornerstone of your life? What's the thing that determines everything else? What's the thing that goes down first? So I um, recall earlier that when Tracy and I were first married, we moved many times. In the first, I think, 
two years of marriage, we moved five times. And uh, for me, every time we would go to the new apartment, the very first thing I would do is go, okay, where's the cable line? I need to plug in the internet router (laughs) immediately. (laughs) That was the cornerstone for me. When we moved into a new apartment, I need the internet. That was the thing that started everything else. I could then do all the stuff I needed to do, Um, look up all the things for the new place and so forth. That was my cornerstone. So uh, writ large, in the big picture of your life, what is the cornerstone? What's the first thing? If you had to start fresh, if you lost everything, what would be your starting point? Maybe it is your faith, if you're a person of faith. Maybe it's a relationship in your life or your family. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's something in your life that's a, a thorn in your side, if you will. Maybe it's something that you wish was not true about yourself, but it's still the thing that everything else flows out of. What's your cornerstone? Is your cornerstone straight and true? If you were to construct the building of your life based on that stone... Would you have straight walls? Would you have a sturdy structure? Let's bring it back into the realm of Christian thought for a moment. And let's think about Jesus. Now, when you think about Jesus as a cornerstone, what are the lines that he draws straight and true that you are most prone to resist aligning with. Because if we're going to make our lives a house that's based on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, we are not going to get our own way at every turn. That's just not how it's going to work unless, unbeknownst to me, one of you is Jesus, which I suspect might mean that you could start with your own way. (laughs) But can we begin with the premise that none of us is Jesus? So if we're going to start to build our life on the cornerstone of Jesus, which are the lines that we are not going to be willing to or desire to line up with? Think about that for a moment. It's that thing that Anne Lamott says, if, if, if you find that God believes everything that you do, it's you've made God in your image, <laughs> rather than recognizing that you were made in God's image. The third stone is an interesting one. The third stone is a stumbling block. <laughs> okay, a stumbling block. Um, this is a phrase that you, I promise, will never hear anywhere except in a church. Stumbling block, Right? I grew up in the holiness tradition, so there were stumbling blocks everywhere. If you're trying to be holy, there are stumbling blocks at every turn. <laughs> what is a stumbling block anyway? I, I went my whole life, never thought about it. Well, look, the Greek word is very interesting. The Greek word is scandalon. It's a scandal. And it simply means something that trips you up. That's how it's used throughout Scripture. 
It's a, a, a stumbling block is something that you trip on. Have you ever been walking in the streets, uh, the sidewalks of Rochester, and you know how we have winters and summers and winters and summers and the frosts and it heaves and it you know, gets all bent out of shape? And there's, you, you eventually will come to this part of the sidewalk where one pad is just slightly off from the other pad, and there's this little triangle that sticks out. It's like an inch maybe or less, and somehow every stinking time your toe catches that little thing, right? Or if you're in a, pushing a stroller, it's like... There's like scandalons everywhere in some of the streets in the sidewalks of Rochester. That's a, that's a stumbling block. That's the stone that causes someone to trip. I'd like to look at First Peter chapter 2. You have to go way to the back of the Bible for this one. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8, but I want to especially uh, draw your attention to verses 7 and 8. So Peter here quotes a few things from the Old Testament, including one that will be very familiar to you, and including one that references uh, a scandal on, a stumbling stone. So take hold of your stone and imagine it's these stones. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here's where he begins to quote, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, the chief cornerstone, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Here's my questions about this third stone, the scandalon, the stumbling stone. Can the same stone be both your cornerstone and your stumbling block? Peter seems to indicate that Jesus is both the cornerstone and a stumbling block. How is that true in your own life? Ponder that mystery for a moment. Does Christ, his story, his teachings, his church, cause you to stumble? Is there a point at which you trip? (laughs) How or why is that true in your life? The fourth stone is the stone of execution. You may remember that on Easter Sunday we read the story of the woman who had been caught in adultery, the woman that the Pharisees wanted to stone to death, the one that they dragged before Jesus. By the way, we'll look at her story again briefly in passing in two weeks when we do the Gospel in Chairs.
The idea of stoning people to death for moral or religious violations is hinted at, obviously, in John chapter 8, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery. But it goes back much deeper. It goes back into the law of Moses. And, of course, it was uh, present in the, the world around the Israelites as well. I want to look at just one of the many places in the law of Moses that mandates stoning for certain infractions. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the gate of that place, They shall say to the elders of his town, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel will hear and be afraid. Here are my questions. I have many questions. Here are some of them about this passage. (laughs) What kind of rock is best for stoning someone to death? Certainly not this kind of rock. It's too small. I could harm somebody with this rock, but it would not be suitable for stoning someone to death. I want you to think about the stone that you'd need to have to carry out this type of sentence. How big is it? What shape is it? How would it feel in your hand if you were holding that stone? Can you imagine holding that rock? Gathered around a person, ready to throw it? ready to mete out God's justice against someone who uh, didn't obey his parents? Let me ask you this. What if the crime were much more serious? What if the crime were truly horrific? Perhaps, if it's not too painful for you, you can think of the most horrific crime imaginable. The state of Texas executed somebody this past week whose crime was truly horrific. It was horrifying. Could you pull the lever on the electric chair if the crime were heinous enough? Could you start the drip on the lethal injection? Could you attend an execution as a witness? People do. Sometimes people do. Very often the families of the victims of the crime will be present when the execution is carried out. If you were the victim, uh, if you were the family of a victim, could you imagine being there? By the way, people uh, in America particularly have uh, a history of 
being witnesses to executions, both those carried out by the state and those carried out by a mob. It wasn't very long ago in our history that people were taking photographs and making postcards out of them at lynchings. Now, we are all horrified by everything that I've just said. But I want you to ask yourself honestly, how many steps are there in between your very enlightened views about crime and punishment and standing around somebody holding a heavy, sharp stone in your hand? We must be very honest with ourselves in this moment. Because let me tell you, human beings are human beings. And we can say whatever we want about those who were generations before us, how they just didn't understand things. But I don't think that was their problem. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about this question. How many steps are there between you and your enlightened views and standing around with a mob with a stone in your hand? That's an actual question I want you to think about right now. Let me tell you about the final stone, the fifth and final stone. The final stone is your heart. The phrase heart of stone comes from a beautiful verse that's buried deep in the writings of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26. Now, it doesn't say it right here, but when you read from the prophets of Israel, you can usually assume that somewhere along the line before the verse that you're reading was the phrase, thus says the Lord. Okay, so, thus says the Lord. A new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So here are my questions about this fifth stone. In what way is your heart hardened like a stone? Now, many of us might say, well, my heart isn't hard. If you say my heart isn't hard, that's a very good indication that it is. Okay. Let's be honest with ourselves. In what way is your heart hardened like stone? Are there people or ideas you simply will not consider? Let me ask you this. Does the suggestion that Jesus Christ 
actually rose bodily from the dead turn your heart to stone? A little bit. Are you an empirical kind of person? Are you uh, interested in data and material fact and what we understand about the world from science? If you are, and I am, I can't imagine how that assertion couldn't, could possibly not turn your heart to stone a little bit. When you hear something like that, there has to be a part of us that goes, that does not sound like that could happen. Is it just too much to believe? Sometimes you, you find yourself rejecting the whole thing. On your best and most faithful day, does the demand to align your life not by your own standards, but by the standards of Jesus, the cornerstone, does that turn your heart to stone? Is it just too much to ask? Is, in other words, Jesus himself your scandalon, your stumbling stone? Does the stone of execution turn your heart to stone? Let me ask you this. Does the very idea that God's people could possibly believe that something so barbaric was actually God's will make you want to throw out the entire story of Scripture? Maybe the execution stone hardens your heart. Or maybe it's the call to lay down your stone that hardens your heart. In a world so full of evil, some people simply deserve a harsh punishment. They just do. And if you have been a victim of a person like that, I think you ought to be forgiven for having your heart hardened by the suggestion that God in Christ specifically demands that we do not judge other people. That can leave you feeling very unsatisfied. And maybe you're unwilling to lay down the rock that you have in your own hand if for no other reason than out of fear for your own safety. But do you know what I think we do sometimes? I think sometimes we project the hardness of our own hearts onto the very religion that we claim to follow and obey. Frankly, I think that might be what was happening in Deuteronomy 21. That's how I square that barbaric practice with a holy loving God. But you see it all around you all the time. People using religion and their faith as an excuse to express the most hardened, darkened, stony place in their heart. I mentioned Rene Girard earlier. 
the philosopher, literary critic, theologian who's been so formational for me. Here's something that he says that I, I, need, I need to give you a minute or two to ponder. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. He says, what turns our hearts to stone is the discovery that in one sense or another, we are all butchers pretending to be sacrificers. I told you he's deep. (laughs) To comprehend that idea, you need a minute of silence, I think. And I'm going to say it again because some people are listening to this on podcasts and they don't have the luxury of the screen. Gerard, the one who uh, gave us this particular arrangement of five stones, says, what turns our hearts to stone is the discovery that in one sense or another we are all butchers pretending to be sacrificers. In what way have you allowed the hardness of your own heart to trump the beauty of the gospel? In what way are you projecting that stony heart onto the very religion you claim to follow and obey? I actually want you to think about that question for a minute. Take a moment of silence. you were hoping that I would come up with some um, very insightful response to that quotation that would make us all feel better. Um, you were hoping in vain. Because I don't have one. That thing, that sentence, that statement cuts me to my core. But let me tell you this. This is the one key truth that I think allows us to see the beautiful gospel in light of all these things. It's that fifth stone. The fifth stone, you see, is actually a promise. It's a promise of transformation. And better still, it's a promise of transformation that we receive, not one that we achieve. Notice what the Bible says. What, the, what God says through the prophet Ezekiel is, I meaning God, I will remove from your body the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. See, turning your own heart from stone to flesh is not something that you have to do all entirely on your own and of your own power. As a matter of fact, you couldn't do it on your own if you tried, as anybody who has ever tried can attest. It's God who gives a new heart. Or to to quote the psalmist from that psalm that we have had in front of our eyes for weeks on end now, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, it is all grace. This promise of a new heart is activated by our faith. Let me tell you what I don't mean by that. What I don't mean is that you get the promise if you... Uh, are able to believe everything perfectly. I don't mean that you get the promise if every single word of the Apostles' Creed is written on, the, on, on your heart and you accept it wholesale. That is not the kind of faith that saves us. That's the kind of faith that turns us into uh, religious robots. The kind of faith that saves us 
is the kind of faith that simply means trusting enough in Jesus to move forward into a life that you can't totally see. That's the faith that saves us. That's the faith that activates in us the promise of God to turn our hearts of stone, to pull them right out, to replace them with hearts of flesh. You see, it is all grace in the end. Now, if you want the grace of Jesus, if you want him to remove that heart of stone and put the heart of flesh into you, his grace is on offer here today and every week. The table of the Lord is open for each of us who are seeking to trust him and follow him into that place that we know not. And so if you trust Jesus, please come to his table. Receive his body and his blood into your own body and into your own blood. Remember his broken body, his shed blood. Receive food for your souls. Receive the grace that is offered here. We talk about these sacraments as a means of grace. There's, there's a, it's an avenue that God can get his grace down into the town of your life. And so please come. Please come. The table of the Lord is open now. His grace is here. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.